Mick Sullivan of The Past and the Curious has a new book available. That's me. I See Lincoln's Underpants is a book about famous people and their underwear. 16 chapters on 16 people and their undies and lots of other stuff too, like the Underwear Hall of Fame. Lots of laughing, lots of learning. It's available wherever you get your books. And if you wind up with a copy, please leave a review. Be sure to request it at your local library too. That will help. This is an indie effort. I am an indie operation. Thank you. everybody, my name is Mick Sullivan and welcome to The Past and the Curious, episode 77. And uh, hey, first things first, April 16th, I will be at WBUR's City Space in Boston um, as part of the Mega Awesome Super Huge Wicked Fun podcast play date. Uh, on Saturday, Circle Round, Tumble, and Girl Tales will be there. On Sunday, me, uh, The Past and the Curious, Mystery Recipe and Smash Boom Best will will be there. Uh, I'm going to be on at 10 o'clock, and I'd love to see you and meet you if you're anywhere near the area. Um, But I also think that there might be digital tickets available, virtual passes. Um, So uh, you might want to look into that. I would love to talk to you from out there. I'm going to tell some really great stories and sing a couple songs that I'm really excited about. This episode is about steamboats. I've got an episode about a steamboat that wound up where it didn't belong. And also an important story about some people who decided to work outside of the law to do what they knew was right, and they used a steamboat to do it. Boats belong in the water. Corn belongs in the field. That's not like some strange old-fashioned saying or anything. I just figured it's something that we can all probably agree on. But sometimes the world gets out of whack, and things wind up where they're not supposed to wind up. Like back in 1910, when nearly 1,000 people showed up to a cornfield near Ravenswood, West Virginia. The eager gawkers showed up because they thought it was their only chance to see a steamboat in the middle of a cornfield. Which was definitely a pretty weird thing to see. But as it would turn out, they didn't really need to go rushing to the field. For several months in 1910, Curious onlookers were able to travel to the site to gawk every day at one of the world's most beautiful and luxurious steamboats as it lay stuck in the mud, smack dab in the middle of a cornfield. If you're wondering how it got there, let me first tell you about the boat. The corn-bound boat was known as the Virginia and was built in 1895. At the time, the Virginia was likely the nicest paddlewheel steamboat on the Ohio River. No expense was spared, so it was also one of the most technologically advanced boats. In addition to fancy carpet, wood paneling, and expensive glass mirrors all over its common rooms and private rooms, it also had a fancy new searchlight on the outside and electric lighting on the inside. It was such an impressive boat that on its first journeys along the river, crowds came out to the shore just to watch it pass by. And it wasn't the last time the Virginia would attract a crowd. Look at all those lights. Those aren't oil lamps like on every other boat out there. It's like a city on the water. A boat like that sure does belong on the river. Definitely not in a cornfield. Definitely not. The advent of no other steamboat on the upper Ohio will have received such a flattering reception as that to be tendered to the new Virginia. 
all along the valley, especially in the upper Ohio, the inhabitants are waiting for their first glimpse of Commodore Henderson's beauty. The new Virginia will come out on her maiden trip next Monday and will make her first appearance at the Wheeling Wharf on Thursday morning. A ball will take place on board on the arrival of the packet at Pittsburgh Friday next week. From the Wheeling Daily Intelligencer, Monday, December 23rd, 1895. Now let me tell you about the river. There's a bit of a disagreement on the origin of the name of the Ohio River. It's hard to really be sure about anything when you go far enough back in time, but it's generally agreed upon that Ohio comes from a Native American word, most likely Seneca or Iroquois, meaning good river or beautiful river. And many times in its life, the river has been a good river, insofar as it matters to humans. In total, it's 981 miles long, and it connects Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Cairo, Illinois, where it meets the Mississippi River. Before trains and railroads, rivers were the easiest way to move people and things, and the Ohio was one of the most important rivers. But sometimes the river was not so good to the people depending on it. But that's just the way Mother Nature is sometimes. Humans are just a small part of the world, and of course, they try to control as much as they can. Nowadays, we have locks and dams and canals to control the natural tendencies of rivers and make it easy for boats to navigate. But before people could control water levels with some reliability, the weather was in charge. And this meant during the summer when it wasn't raining much, the river would get really shallow. Like, too shallow for most boats. Especially big boats like the Virginia. On the other hand, during rainy periods, the river would flood and spill so far over the banks that it would be more like a fast-moving lake. And the muddy water could just flood up onto any nearby city, town, or cornfield. 1909 was a tough year for the owners of the Virginia. As expected, the summer season left the river low. But this year, the water was lower than normal. The prized boat Virginia couldn't leave port because the lack of water in the river made it impossible to even float. But every day it sat docked was another day it didn't make a dollar. So when it finally started raining in 1910, the Virginia's owners took heart and acted quickly. As the river began to swell with water, the Virginia was loaded up in Pittsburgh with 600 tons of cargo, a full crew, and 50 or more passengers bound for different ports along the river. The crew had to move fast because they understood that as soon as the spring rains made their way to the river, the water would be carried quickly downstream and the high water levels would soon be gone, leaving shallow sections yet again. So on Saturday, March 5th, the Virginia headed down the wild Ohio River, which was up and out of its banks. Thanks to the strong current, they made good time for the first day. But in the dark, things got weird especially since all the lights that had been put on shore for boats to use as they navigated were gone. The water had extinguished nearly everything. So if not for the fancy lamp the Virginia sported, it would have been as dark as a blank blackboard in a bedroom closet. Near Ravenswood, West Virginia, they had to drop off a passenger or two, along with some stuff for the local merchants. So they found their way to a usable bank, bid them adieu, and readied the ship to get back out to the channel of the river. But a strange grinding sound came from the hull, or the bottom of the boat. Oh, that's not good. What do you think that was? That, sir, sounds like the bottom. I think we've run aground. So they repositioned the boat and tried again, 
no dice. After that, there was no more repositioning to be done. The boat was as stuck as a once-wet sucker on the underside of a sofa cushion. So the crew unloaded some cargo, thinking that maybe lightening the load would let the boat rise up just enough to drift on to deeper water. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. So a passing tugboat named Volcano was summoned. The Volcano crew gave a few tugs and then gave up. There wasn't anything that was going to free the Virginia. This was a problem, but the bigger problem was that the river's water level was already on its way back down. There was a very good chance that they wouldn't be surrounded by any water at all much longer. With the light of dawn, the crew learned that the Virginia had stopped to drop off a passenger at what was once a hard bend in the river. The water had flooded over the bend, so it looked more like a lake. At least, until the water went down. As the water receded, the Virginia was left in a place it shouldn't have been. In the middle of a cornfield. Boats belong in the water, not in a cornfield. Yeah, well, here we are. What are we going to do? Do? There's nothing to do. We're 600 feet away from the river. Stuck in the mud. In a giant boat. In a cornfield. Now listen here. This ain't just any cornfield. I'm James Williamson, and this here is my cornfield you parked your boat in. Boats belong in the water, not here in my cornfield. Sir, with all due respect, I think we have a misunderstanding. We didn't park it. Wait, what's going on with all these people? While the passengers of the boat were sent back quickly on a nearby railroad, word spread, and papers immediately ran the story of the steamboat stuck in a cornfield. The following Sunday... Over 1,000 people showed up to gawk at the Virginia on Farmer Williamson's farm. Before long, a little tourist industry sprouted up. Brass bands would travel to the site and play music for people who brought picnic lunches as they all sat around in the cornless cornfield, gawking at a boat 600 feet from the waterline. Plenty of laughs were had at the expense of the Virginia's crew. If I were a pilot, I'd find a new field. One that's not a cornfield. It's pretty amazing that all these people are here to see this boat. But do you think the boat feels like it's getting stalked? Did you hear that the crew of the Virginia won an award? Yeah, let's congratulate them for being outstanding in the field. All of these corn jokes, I find them difficult to digest. It went on for months. It's not like the Virginia's owner didn't try to dislodge the boat. They hired a company that had once hoisted a gigantic mansion hundreds of feet up a cliff in one piece and safely set it down on a brand new spot. Seems like they'd be able to move a steamboat 600 feet, right? But once they started digging, they found ancient artifacts underneath the boat and nearby. Experts from the Historical Society came to see and determined that they were Native American artifacts from the woodland period, thousands of years old, and vitally important to understanding the history of the area. So that caused a delay. Not that it really mattered, because the Virginia remained stubbornly stuck. So Farmer Williamson eventually popped. I can't plant corn on my land, which is where corn belongs. And I can't because you left your big old boat here which is where it doesn't belong. I can't help but feel like you owe me some money. If you don't want to pay me for my corn losses, fine. But I'm going to charge you for a parking space. And my rates are high. It'll be $500. Finally, in the middle of June, 
a heavy rain mercifully began to fall. Thanks to the mansion-moving crew, the Virginia had moved a bit closer to the river than it had before, but it was still too far, too dry, and too stuck. But on the 20th of that month, the rising river's edge finally met the boat once again. The stuck steamer was back where it belonged, floating on the Ohio River, unbound to the bottom, and free of Williamson's cornfield. It made it back to Pittsburgh one week later. Birds had nested in it, wasps and mud daubers had built colonies in its abandoned cabin. But once its big red wheel started going around and around and around again, everything was back to the way it should have been. The Virginia ran for years after that, under a few different names, until it was disassembled in 1930. Today, however, there is a steamboat in New Orleans called the Natchez, which anyone can ride. It's a nearly exact replica of the Virginia. Though, it's never been stuck in a cornfield. At least, not yet. Civil engineers, people who build infrastructure in the world around us for the benefit of society, soon made great steps to solve these kinds of problems. Knowing that boats belonged on water and wanting to keep them there, along with providing consistent water levels year-round, engineers created dozens of locks and dams on the Ohio River beginning in the 1920s. And the Ohio is not alone. Most major rivers have these human-made modifications today. All year round, these systems help keep the water deep enough for river traffic to move with very little trouble. And they also help control the water levels. That doesn't mean that there aren't still floods. There most certainly are. So there's still a chance that a boat could wind up where it doesn't belong. 600 feet in the middle of a cornfield is not likely. But anything's possible. For this, Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Once you have 30 seconds, we turn it over to Sam from Delaware. Sam? Computer science? Nunneries? 
Hi, my name is Sam, and I'm going to talk about Mary Kenneth Keller. Mary Kenneth Keller was born in 1913 and was the first woman in the United States to have a degree in computer science and the first person to have a PhD in computer science. She also helped develop a computer language called BASIC. The most interesting about her, though, is that she was also a nun since age 18 and founded the computer science department at a Catholic woman's college. Holy cow, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sam. Great job. That was a lot of information packed into a little bit of time, which is the goal with You Have 30 Seconds. And Sam, you knocked it out of the park. If you have a You Have 30 Seconds, you have a You Have a You Have a 30 Seconds, all you got to do is make a recording with a voice memo, email it to me at hello at thepastandthecurious.com. And uh, as time allows, I will put it on the air. Thank you very much. It's quiz time. Time. It's quiz time. Time, time. That's right, y'all. It's quiz time. And the first question is this. Though other people like John Fitch had designed steamboats before him, Robert Fulton created the first steamboat for public service, which was also the first one to be commercially successful, so it was kind of a big deal. Do you know what it was called? It was officially called the North River Steamboat of Claremont, but everyone knew it as the Claremont, and it made its debut in 1807. So here's question number two. The Claremont made history when it made the journey from New York City to Albany, New York. How long did it take the boat to travel 150 miles on the river? So just for perspective, if you are driving 60 miles an hour, 150 miles would take you about two hours and 30 minutes. For the Claremont, traveling at a much slower pace alone on the river, that distance took over 32 hours. It sounds painfully slow, but it was remarkable at the time, and it was a huge first step for fast travel in America. Most importantly though, its engine powered the vessel, not humans or animals or wind, or anything else. Alrighty then, this is going very fast this month. Uh, question number three. Before his steamboat became successful, Robert Fulton lived in France, where he was hired by Napoleon Bonaparte to make what? Robert Fulton created the Nautilus, which was a submarine. It wasn't powered by steam, but it was powered by good old-fashioned muscles, the muscles of the person on board. It was actually kind of similar to the turtle, which we've covered on another episode of The Past and the Curious, but Robert Fulton's Nautilus was actually a much more successful, much more usable submarine. Way to go, Robert. John Barry Meacham met his wife Mary sometime in the early 1800s. Though he had been born in Virginia and lived a while in North Carolina, he was eventually brought to Kentucky, where he first saw Mary. John and Mary were enslaved, which left them with little control over their lives. I say little, because while the unjust laws of the days limited their freedom, they, like many others, found a way to fight for more and more control and with each step gained towards freedom, 
they made sure to help others along the way. Ultimately, they knew the greatest gift that they could share was education. And at the time, this meant breaking the law, or at least working outside of the law. When they first got to know each other in Kentucky, John and Mary were enslaved by different families. This meant they lived in different places and that they were forced to focus their lives and work around the needs of people who claimed to own them. This was not unusual for many enslaved people in America, and most likely this meant the couple could only see each other one day a week, probably on Sundays. It was just one of the many obstacles that they'd overcome. Nevertheless, the two decided to get married. They started a family, but John dreamt of seeing all of his family free, even the ones he had to leave behind in Virginia. John's enslaver, the man who, by the laws of the time, owned him, allowed him to also work and earn occasionally for himself. John picked up some skills, including carpentry and coopering, or making barrels. When the War of 1812 broke out in America, the young country was in need of gunpowder, which could be made from saltpeter. Nearly overnight, mining caves for saltpeter, which is a byproduct of bat poop, became a very lucrative business. As a skilled young man, John Barry Meacham earned money this way both for himself and his enslaver until his early 20s. By then, he had earned enough and had the permission needed at the time to purchase his own freedom. With his newfound freedom and a pocket full of money, John walked all the way to Virginia to free his father. While returning to Kentucky, he carried the hope of freeing his wife, Mary, as well. But what he discovered there broke his heart. Mary's enslaver had moved to St. Louis, Missouri, and taken her with him. John had no money left, so following their trail was not an immediate option. He had to work for a while before he could earn enough to go try to find her but he did. In Missouri, John was unlike nearly anyone. Very, very few of the state's black residents were free at the time. John said he arrived in 1815 with only $3 in his pocket. And despite a lack of funds, he immediately set to work on boosting the city's free black population. He found Mary, and soon enough, in the new city, he earned the money needed to purchase Mary's freedom and he did the same for other family members. Over the years, Mary and John built a life of prosperity. The family made money from the steamboat industry, farming, barrel making, and carpentry. They also became well known in certain communities for helping people escape slavery in Missouri. It's important to say certain communities because when it comes to the people who helped others find freedom, we don't often know the full story. It was wise to remain as secretive as possible. For people involved with the Underground Railroad, as it is often called, helping people escape slavery was illegal and dangerous. Because it was against the law to help someone flee slavery, it was risky to talk about, to write about, or leave any sorts of records about. As a result, people today don't or likely can't know all of the facts. However, John and Mary's actions made it clear that they helped hundreds and often helped not by breaking any unjust laws, but instead working around unjust laws. After a few years in St. Louis, thanks to their successful business ventures, John Barry Meacham co-founded the first black church in the city. He put his money, power, and knowledge to good use. 
Some days, John would stroll up to one of the open-air slave markets in St. Louis. And there, amongst a group of the city's white slaveholders, John would bid to purchase human beings just as they did. According to accounts of the time, John purchased dozens of people over the years. He didn't view these people as property like the other men did, though. Instead, these people were brought into the Meacham home and trained with skills like carpentry and farming and coopering. John knew that these skills would help them earn money and build a life. And once they were ready, he sent these people on their way to live a life of freedom using these skills. Often, people used these new skills to pay John back so that he could, in turn, use the money again to free and train yet another person held in bondage. It was just one way to fight back against a cruel system. Training people was the key in the Meachams' minds. People needed skills to survive and thrive, so they reasoned that educating young people would set them up for the future that they believed in, a future where slavery did not exist in America. So in the basement of their church, they began a school. It was known as the Candle Tallow School. The name was reflective of the environment. You see, to many people, educating enslaved people was dangerous. Knowledge and understanding can change the world, but some people didn't want the world to change. The Meachams did. So classes were held in secret. In the windowless church basement, the only light came from burning candles. Still, the wrong people found out about the Candle Tallow School, and the sheriff came and shut it down. Then, in 1847, a new law was passed in Missouri. This law made it illegal to educate any black children. Didn't even matter if a child was legally free or enslaved. Education was outlawed. And as you might guess, this didn't sit well with John and Mary. But rather than take on the law, they considered the circumstances and found a way to work around this unjust new law. It just so happened that from their business interests, they owned an old steamboat. And it just so happened that they were in possession of a small school's worth of stuff from the now defunct Candle Tallow School. Whatever they might be missing for a new school, the Meachams could afford to purchase anyway. The Mississippi River is the border between Missouri and Illinois. It is not part of Missouri, and it is not part of Illinois. It is federal property. The American government is in charge of it, not a state. And the Meachams knew this. And they knew there wasn't a national law like this restrictive and racist law that there was in Missouri. And that's a big difference, especially when you're planning to make your school in the middle of a river. Technically speaking, Missouri law didn't apply to the middle of the river, so that's where they took the school. Anchored to a sandbar in the middle of the mighty Mississippi, the Meacham's boat opened for students, and it soon became known as the Floating Freedom School. With desks, a library, and all the essentials for education, the sedentary steamboat soon became a school solution for dozens. Children who could not afford tuition were allowed to attend for free, and those who could afford gladly paid. And word spread. Before long, teachers showed up from other states back east because they heard about the floating Freedom School and were more than willing to help. Leaving each day from the shore in small boats called skiffs, students were paddled out into the flowing river where 
free from the oppressive state laws, these students would learn from teachers everything from the basics of reading to advanced subjects similar to lessons taught in a typical college classroom. One floating Freedom School student named James Turner had been enrolled at the highly respected Oberlin College in Ohio. But when his father died during his freshman year, he returned to St. Louis to help care for his family. He finished his education at the Floating Freedom School. And then, as an adult, he co-founded the Lincoln Institute, the first black college in Missouri, and one that is still operating today. So clearly, the Meacham's influence stretches into our current world. It is said that while delivering a sermon, John Barry Meacham died at the pulpit in 1854. But the Floating Freedom School continued educating students in the middle of the Mississippi River until 1860. A man named John Anderson took over, until the approaching Civil War lowered enrollment. Anderson had been a student at the school himself, and he carried John Meacham's dream into a time when slavery was outlawed in the United States. After the Floating Freedom School closed, Anderson worked tirelessly to fund free public schools for black residents of St. Louis. And in 1864, he succeeded. It's quite a legacy. Mary also continued the work that she had begun with her husband. Just a year after his death, in 1855, Mary made news when she and another man named Isaac piloted a boat across the river bound for the free state of Illinois. She was leading a group of nine escaped slaves who were fleeing Missouri in search of freedom. Mary was arrested for assisting them. However, when she went to trial a few weeks later, there must have been more than a few people sympathetic to her efforts in helping. All of the charges except for one were dropped, and after being tried for the remaining single charge, she was found not guilty. Today, in St. Louis, the site of the crossing is commemorated as Mary Meacham Freedom Crossing, and it was the first place in Missouri to be named a National Park's Underground Railroad Network to Freedom site. Well, thanks everybody. That's episode 77. If you have gotten a copy of Link I See Lincoln's Underpants, it would be a huge, huge favor to me if you could leave a review about it wherever you want to leave a review, if that's like Goodreads or ideally where you bought it, like Amazon or Books A Million or Barnes & Noble or, you know, any of those places or your local indie store. In fact, you could re request it from your library. That would be really, really helpful too. Um, and if you have any opportunity, if you have the opportunity to tune in for the WBUR thing in Boston on April 16th, 2023, um, I would love it if you can be there. That's even more awesome, but you know, I understand it's Boston. It's going to be a big thing for me to get there. If you want more details, you can just check out WBUR.org, um, and I'll have a link to it on my website as well. I'm so excited. There's going to be a lot of really great friends. I'm going to get to hang out with the Tumble crew and the Mystery Recipe crew. Oh, it's awesome. going to be super fun. Okay, how about some Patreon people now? That seems like a good thing to do, right? Isabel Reagan, hello to you. I am so glad that you're out there and I got a nice message from a grown-up in your life and uh, uh, I'm glad you're there. Hey, hey, Isabel Reagan. Um, Natalie, who is almost eight and is currently binging The Past and the Curious, thank you so much. I'm so glad you like it. And Natalie, you might want to slow down because uh, once you get to the end, you're either going to have to wait or you're just going to start over, which I know a lot of people do. So that's really cool too. 
Um, Lorenzo, also known as Lolo, what's up? So nice to know that you're out there. I also got a great, great note from uh, from your mom who uh, thanks for the the fancy underwear wishes. That was that was very cool. Very very much in line with what we do here. Uh, but Lolo, I'm so glad you're out there. Um, and then I know that I I thanked Mackie last month, but I think this episode is actually going to release on Mackie's birthday. Uh, March 29th. So just want to say hello again to Mackie and happy birthday to you. Speaking of birthdays, Callum in Chicago. Uh, I wish you the best. Happy birthday to you, my friend. Um, and last but not least, I actually met somebody at the Fraser Museum where I work in Louisville this week named Dave David, who was in town for an archery contest and made a special trip to come say hey and uh, and join me for a tour and stuff. And it was super cool. It was nice to meet you. So um, that's always a pleasure when that happens. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. Thanks to everybody out there. This has been The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and I will talk to you soon. Maybe I'll see you in April. I don't know.